As I mentioned in my uh, Faith Matters piece this week, I have been thinking more about Father's Day this year than years past. I suppose that's because of my status as a grandfather now and because I have been observing my own children's efforts at being parents in these first years, and they're doing well. I have a vivid memory of Luke, Luke's birth, my firstborn, and being present at the delivery. I was the first person to hold him right after the doctor. <clears throat> and I, I remember holding him up eye level and looking right at him. I don't know what he could see, of course, but I was looking right at him and said, so there you are. You are mine and I am yours. So be it. And we'll walk the journey ahead, whatever it comes. We'll do it together. And so it has been for 36 years and counting. And for my daughter, who was born 18, years, 18 months later, fatherhood has been a wonderful gift. And actually, as I was thinking about it this this past week, it might be among, it, it might be the very best gift thus far in my life. It's possible that that is the case. I have more to say on that, but, but I digress. Because I was thinking these thoughts, I thought of uh, other memories that came to mind of fathers I've known in the past, and one particular dad who was a new member, a a new congregant in a church that I was serving well over 30 years ago now. Shortly after he joined, he told me that he had lost his firstborn son during his fourth birthday party. The boy had choked on a carrot stick stuck in his trachea that a vigorous Heimlich maneuver could not dislodge. As you can imagine, a, an excruciating, unbearable loss. I knew from my work that statistically, couples that experience the accidental death of a small child frequently wind up in divorce. Shame and guilt are major culprits, and the subsequent need to blame someone in order to escape the sense of incipient responsibility. And then the simple physical presence of one's spouse conjures a kind of living memory of the child that can sponsor an awful Groundhog Day experience of relentlessly reliving the tragedy. In this case, the couple was still accountable for parenting another child, a two-year-old sibling. So, lost in their grief, they turned to a therapist who, tragically, fell in love with my new friend's spouse. A colossal colossal misadventure of what's called in psychology counter-transference. The therapist chalked up as true love. So divorce did ensue and her remarriage to the therapist. Dad retained custody of the child and after several years moved to a new town and a fresh start. It was then that he showed up 
at my church. Time flowed forward for a while when I got a call from this same dad in a hospital emergency room. His younger son had been struck by a truck while riding a bike on a busy highway. Dad could hardly choke out that he was in critical condition. I told him I was on my way. I sat with him for hours, waiting some word about his son's condition. I imagine I was a pretty capable up-and-comer minister, but bereft of any useful wisdom at that moment when he quietly asked me about faith, as in, Steve, where do you get it? I mumbled something, some well-intentioned, pious gobbledygook, but mostly realized that simply being there was the best response I had. This was no time for either a deep theological conversation or pious platitudes. It was a moment for holy presence and solidarity. Words weren't going to be especially helpful just then. On the other hand, I knew they would be necessary eventually. A trauma specialist finally emerged and reported that his son would likely survive. He'd have a long recovery, and while there was no guarantee for 100% restoration, there was a good chance for that or something close to that. Now, this was a seminal pastoral moment for me, probably because I had two little kids of my own then, just in my, I was probably 31, 32, something like that. I over-identified with this guy. And on the drive home, I realized it was possible to distance myself from the human pain by retreating into my head to theologize about the vagaries of the human condition. That could be an escape from just being present. But many of you know tragedy firsthand or heartache or difficult circumstance, how disorienting it is and how easy to forget the placement of handholds and footholds for staying steady when the ground falls out from under your feet and the frantic flailing about for perspective Those who think deeply about this human situation will come to realize there is finally no truly satisfying answer to the question of why. That was Job's dilemma, the existential of question of why bad things can happen to good people. But that wasn't really my friend's question, interestingly. His was different. He wasn't grappling with the why of it. He accepted that life could be difficult and at times tragic. He understood that sometimes people were at fault and sometimes not. His question was more along the lines of, given that this is the way life is, how can I endure? 
sitting in that hospital waiting room, I think he was wondering how he would be able to go forward if his second child died. And honestly, that question crept into my mind on his behalf. From a selfish, self-absorbed perspective, I was wondering what on earth was I going to say to this man if the trauma specialist had come out and said something much worse. Now, in services like this, we have the opportunity to sit quietly and think deeply about things like this. We enter this space with our own story to tell, our, our own encounter with vexing problems, our own scars as well as triumphs. It's certainly important to celebrate our triumphs too. I wouldn't diminish that for a second. But, but as you know, the heart of the human drama concerns the struggle of making our way through and around problems and obstacles. That's what all of our great literature entails, right? The struggle for wisdom and awareness in the midst of problems and obstacles. Our scriptures are filled with stories like these. Stories like these drive the narrative, and that's a very great strength because the Bible does not mince words about our lived reality, does it? Ever. The Bible deals unflinchingly with the human dilemma of being born and having to die and the physical and moral conundrums that dog us in the meantime. So, for instance, Abraham and Sarah have wanted a son their whole lives. Do you remember the story? This is Abraham, the sort of the bulwark of three of the three major monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They all point to Abram. They're called the Abrahamic faiths. Abraham heard God's call heard God's voice to tell him to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. So Abram went. He prospered. But after years, Sarah is still childless and now evidently beyond childbearing years. This is why she laughs when she hears the words of the three strangers that she will bear a son. Part of the wisdom here pertains to the recurrent theme that God will have the day, that abundant life is the outcome that's woven into the creation fabric. Remember those words on our walls up there that I've referred to before. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and let not your hearts be troubled. Teachings like these refer to the fundamental reality that God will not be deterred from bringing laughter out of heartache, renewal out of decay, and life out of death. This is the recurrent scriptural message that finds its culmination in resurrection. And again, we must never forget that resurrection was born from awful tragedy, which is why it's such a fantastic truth. At its heart, the message is clear. Nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from God's great love. Nothing. This is the seminal truth of our religious tradition. Everything else is derivative. 
Now, in the meantime, each of us must walk a path that is set before us. As you well know, a lot of our misery is of our own making, of course. But then some things seem to come straight at us from out of left field. But in either case, in either case, the holy dictum stands firm and true. God intends good for us. We have not been forgotten, and our lives rest in God's hands. Our job is to accept and revel in this truth. And that is the essence of faith. That's what Paul wants to affirm, in part, with his friends in Rome when he tells them that through their relationship with the risen Christ, they possess this same faith. And given that this risen Christ suffered a terrible death, he was completely present to them in their own sufferings. Do you understand that? That it is in Jesus' very own suffering that he is most present to us in ours. As Paul concludes, we can actually boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, the definition of faith here is nearly the equivalent of having a relationship with. In other words, having a relationship with the risen Christ allows us to endure suffering in such a way that leads to a hopeful future. Why is this? Because God intends good for us. We haven't been forgotten and our lives rest in God's hands. How is this confirmed? By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the logic loop that Paul is identifying for his friends. Faith, then, is a leap into the arms of God. It's not entirely rational. If it were, it wouldn't be faith. By the same token, it's not exactly irrational either. Our very existence is evidence of something remarkable and wonderful afoot in the world. And again, as our scriptures make clear, all of creation gives evidence of God's life-abundant nature. Now, this does not mitigate or negate the reality that life can be difficult. That truth is perfectly obvious, even if we struggle in our own lives to disprove it, as though it shouldn't be difficult for me. And you know, that's where a lot of our agony lays, in the misguided assumption that I should have special dispensation. You know, friends, what we all have, what all of us have, is simply life in all of its richness and complexity, its beauty and agony, its sorrow and joy. 
That's what we all share. This astonishing, wondrous gift. My friend and I wound up having a number of conversations about all of this. And I witnessed his faith blossoming, as did his life. Eventually he fell in love again and married. And that family thrived and life advanced. And before, the, before I left the congregation, he wanted me to know that though it seemed a nearly impossible outcome, he had actually come to know joy and peace and hope. And he was a very grateful man.